Well, hello again from the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm Alex Grand with my co-host Jim Thompson. Today we have a special guest, Danny Fingeroth. Danny Fingeroth spent nearly two decades as a writer and editor for Marvel Comics, an expert in comics writing, editing, and history. He has spoken about comics and their creators at venues including the Smithsonian Institution, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and Columbia University. Danny has taught comics writings at multiple universities and was a longtime group editor of Marvel's Spider-Man line and has written many comics including the Deadly Foes of Spider-Man limited series and the entire 50-issue run of Dark Hawk and was a consultant to the Fox Kids Spider-Man animated series. So Danny, those words probably sound pretty familiar to you. We're really excited to have you here. Jim's going to start off with kind of the early days before your comics career. Jim, take it away. Okay. Hi, Danny. Hi, guys. Um, when and where were you born? I was born in New York, New York. I was born in the 50s. <laughs> let's, let's, let's leave it vague like that. But uh, I'm, a, I'm a sort of prime era baby boomer. So oh. did, you, did you play with Howard Shaken when you were a baby? No, Howard lived in a faraway land called Brooklyn. I was <laughs> So, you know, we, I, I joke about that, but it seems like everyone is born in New York. That seems to be the common denominator in not everyone, but almost everyone that we've, we've spoken with on this. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think, I mean, there's a lot of historical reasons, sort of in my case, for me to kind of take a chance on looking for a job at Marvel Comics meant I did not have to fly cross country or hitchhike right. uh, from, from another country. I just had to get on the subway. So I, I was risking a subway token in, in terms of my, my curiosity and, and my interest in possibly uh, working in, in comics. So, I mean, I think there's a, there's a local, you know, the, the two major mainstream comic companies and even much of the underground world started in and uh, until recently was in and around New York City. So the uh, so if you're a local kid and you love comics and and you're sort of looking for what you're either you're obsessed with it from an early age and or you're kind of trying to figure out what you're going to do uh, as a grown up for a living and and for a career. And it, it's here. There's kind of a mentoring network. There's the publishers. You know, this is where the earliest comic conventions were. And I and I guess there's probably even an aspect that especially the Marvel stories literally took place in New York. So, yeah, they're all in New York. Yeah. You know, New York has this. I'm not sure if you guys uh, have ever lived in New York, but it's it's a it's a funny thing to live in a place that's both real and mythical simultaneously so that there's the real New York of crowded subways and dog shit and hmm. pollution and uh, crazy drivers and the Metropolitan Opera and the Metropolitan Museum and mm -hmm. you know, and, yeah and, and, the lows and, and the highs yeah so there's all the lows and the highs and you could probably spend several months just watching movies that are about some dream world of New York. So to grow up in, in a place that's the object of so many people's fantasies, if you, if you go to any city, if you go anywhere in the world or anywhere in America, you will find expatriate New Yorkers who, for whatever reason, got the hell out, you know? So, it, it's, so as many people are dying to get into New York, that's as many people are dying to get, get out of New York. So yeah, so basically it just comes down to the location of where the Marvel was and also that you were born and lived just close to there. Yeah, but then there's also the culture as well. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your family growing up, your, your, your wow. parents. Um, <laughs> Importantly, which comics did you read as a kid? I was born and raised in pre-gentrification Manhattan. There was the New York of crime and pollution and, uh, and decay that, you know, that I 
you know, I'm not claiming that I grew up impoverished because I didn't, but I mean, that was sort of, you know, none of my suburban relatives were jealous that I was growing up in Manhattan. They, we were all sort of like, oh, it's too bad they never made it to the suburbs. You know? <laughs> but my parents um, were from a similar background to a lot of the comic book creators, which was first uh, generation American born children of Eastern European Jewish immigrants. I mean, that's, that's what I have in common with Stanley, Jack Kirby, you know, uh, Howard Chaikin. So, I mean, that was probably subconsciously something that attracted me to the comics. And then, you know, when I became interested in, in uh, doing them professionally and learning more about comics history, mm-hmm. my parents and aunts and uncles grew up and played and, uh, you know, and made their way through the same streets that Will Eisner and and that whole generation lived. Right. So that's my background. Sort of like being a famous comic book editor means that you're famous to like one-tenth of one percent of the population, unless you're Stan Lee. Right. Uh, my father was a well-known cantor. He uh, led services at the at a at one of the larger Catskills hotels called the Neville, which was sort of a stepped, you know, in the same league as Grossinger's and the Concord, if you know your Jewish New York area history, and also was in the in the banquet catering business, and also had a law degree. So that was kind of like Eisner's family. And my mother was a, a speech therapist in the New York school system. Uh, you know, as far as my reading comics, I think they were glad I was reading something. They never forbid me to read com. I had a friend who, who even though he was among the poorer kids in this yeshiva that I went to through eighth grade, his parents owned a candy store in the Bronx, which meant he got the comics before anybody. Even though he was, you know, technically not as well to do as some of my classmates, he was the only one I was really jealous of. He was like, oh man, he gets the comics. <laughs> That's right. And he, get, and he gets them for free. Were you an early reader? Yeah, I was one of those kids who, like, in first grade, when people were struggling with Dick and Jane, I would just be like, just read the friggin' thing. It, it just, it, it just run, spot, run. What is so difficult? You know, right? Yeah, that's a reader. common factor in everybody yeah. we interview, too. They, they, they're all, all the comic people are all, seem to be early readers. And comics were a, a big part of that. And comics did, you know, it's, it's almost a cliche, but I guess it's true. Comics did use large vocabulary, certainly larger than a lot of the books you would be reading in you know, kindergarten, first, second, even third grade. It's funny because even though they were clearly aimed at children, and yet some of them dealt with very sophisticated stories and themes, you know, that even in the pre-Marvel era, you could see that comics had all this smart stuff lurking under the surface, the EC comics, certainly. So my background, yeah, so I was, I read comics from early. My earliest memory is my mom reading me a Popeye comic. Oh, cool. Probably because, you know, Popeye cartoons were popular when I was a kid. Uh So it must have been the transition. And then my cousin Steve was a Like in 1960 or something? Was that 1960? Yeah, it would have been more like, 58, you know. 58, okay. 58, 59. I had an older cousin who was a comics reader used to give them to me, so I can't, it's like I can't remember literally my first comic. I have this vague memory of being a Popeye thing. And then, you know, see, I was reading them early and, and I got into the superheroes, something about that. You know, I remember reading Sad Sack and Popeye and in elementary school, I think, I'm from an era when every kid read comics for a year or two or read them casually, you know, whether it was mm-hmm. Archie or Casper the Friendly Ghost or Superman. But there were two or three other kids. I was in a class of like 50 kids in this school. I was in, you know, there were, we were all in the you know, same. We, we kind of progressed together through 
school, and in that group, there were two or three other kids who were, you know, into comics more than casually, who, you know, one of them was the one who said, you know, after I've been reading for a few years, said, there's this new thing called the Fantastic Four you should check out, you know, so that was sort of my grapevine. And then there, you know, I grew up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, on the wrong side of Lexington Avenue. People who know Manhattan will know what I mean. I'm so old, there was literally a brewery a block away from my house making Rupert Knickerbocker beer. If you can imagine, you know, sort of your your movie image of the glamour of Manhattan, and suddenly there's a factory making beer down the block as if we were in some town in Ohio or something. No offense, Ohio listeners. There were a couple of newsstands where I bought so many comics that when I went away to summer camp, even though I would leave my mother a detailed list of what comics to get me, because, you know, God forbid I would miss an issue of anything the guy at the newsstand already knew what i wanted you know and, and mm. i had a credit i had a credit line with him sometimes i owed him as much as like 60 cents you know which, wow okay but that's pretty cool the, he did not send the leg breakers out you know luckily. right there were also some secondhand magazine shops that sold comics in the neighborhood and that was always you know and i remember there's one in the bronx because i had a lot of bronx roots because that's where my parents were from and they worked and my grandparents lived I remember buying Fantastic Four number two as a back issue, and, nice. I, paid, and I paid five cents for it because it was an old comic. You weren't going to pay full price for an old comic book. <laughs> uh-huh. So yeah, I pretty much lived and breathed those comics, and I was the perfect age for Marvel when it came out. When Marvel started, if you sort of look through your comic history, you'll see there are a lot of people born somewhere between 1951 and 1955 yeah who ended up in the business you know i think that was if you were like eight nine ten eleven years old and you've got your first dose of marvel comics of the first marvel comics then it really was transformative did you ever write any letters yes but what i did was and i look back now i mean i felt so as if I knew Stan and Jack and Steve that I would write these long, rambling, comprehensive letters. <laughs> like, Here's what I thought of every single thing you did this month. And of course, you know, once you're on the inside, you go, well, nobody's printing like a 10-page letter. You know, if you write a, if you write a reasonably intelligent and witty 50-word letter, you have a much better chance of getting it printed. So I yeah. did write letters. I think I did get some of those postcards, you know, thanking me from Stan and the gang. Oh, that's cool. I never joined the Marvel, Mary Marvel Marching Society, I have to admit. I just sort of compared, well, you could be a Superman of America for a dime or join the Mary Marvel Marching Society for a buck, and I just couldn't, I could never justify that, which, you know, might be indicative of the fact that I never really got involved in organized fandom. So I wasn't one of those kids who had a fanzine and, mm-hmm. and corresponded. Sort of, I had this obsession with uh, comics and at a certain point it became just with Marvel Comics. So that Stan and Jack stuff really sucked you in. Totally. I was who they were looking for. (laughs) Yeah, the target audience as they say. And how old were you when you thought for the first time, I might want to do this for a living? Probably pretty young. I'd say because accompanied by my fascination with and obsession with comics I was obsessed with drawing. I drew all the time. Superheroes, baseball players. I'd draw, you know, the Marvel and DC heroes. I'd make up my own characters. You know, I was a big 
New York Yankees fan, so I'd be drawing Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris. You know, so I think I figured out, obviously, that somebody was drawing these things. And so I think from pretty early on, I remember, you know, as a, when I'm 12 or 13, here I am, I'm living in Manhattan. So that means I'm in walking distance probably of like the top 10 greatest art schools in the world. But I wanted to take the famous artist course, you know, the mail order correspondence course, the one with Norman Rockwell and Albert Dorn. So I, I took the test and shockingly, I passed it. I don't know if anybody ever didn't pass it. You know, so a salesman came to, <laughs> came, came, came to our apartment. My parents were actually, they said, well, think about it for a few days. If you, you know, if you still want it, we'll pay, you know, we'll pay for it. So I wasn't as obsessed as, as some future professionals. I was a kid and a few days later, my attention had drifted and I didn't get the course. I was pretty good for, you know, for a 12 year old. I had a friend who was really good, who I think uh, could have been professional, but chose to become both a dentist and a lawyer you know so there you go you know boy secure that's good that's good secure work (laughs) yeah it is really obviously i'm a writer and editor and word person you have to be a real special kind of kid to be to love comics and not want to be jack kirby so that was sort of the fantasy i had that maybe one day i could do what Jack or guys like like that did. That was sort of, as a kid, my comic book fantasy. Then I kind of, I lost interest in the comics that were coming out in the early 70s. You know, I look back on it now and I go, wow, there's a lot of great stuff. But I think it was a, you know, combination of the typical becoming interested in, you know, girls and music and... Right school and movies and uh, and a hundred other things. And was so this always, around the time that Kirby left Marvel or did you yeah, stay around in for... The, when Kirby left Marvel is around the time my Marvel interest waned. I, I did follow, you know, I look at my collection and I, and I do have most of the fourth world stuff that Kirby did. And in there, I started developing a certain amount of interest in the undergrounds. But I, I was never immersed in the undergrounds. I'm certainly familiar with them, and, and later on I became a huge Harvey Picar fan. It's kind of the underground. It's almost been a, more a matter of me catching up. I think at that point in my life, my attention shifted. You know, talking about late high school, my mm-hmm. attention shifted to literature, movies, and always a great fondness for the medium of comics. Anytime I saw an article about comics or a news item, I was interested in it, but when I look back on the comics, again, I think it was just sort of my becoming a later adolescent and and developing other interests, but I think it was when a certain level of innovation ended and the level of professionalism came in. So I can look at that professionalism now and I can say, boy, these were some really talented people doing these stories. But the explosive excitement where every issue of Fantastic Four and every issue of Spider-Man and every issue of Tales of Suspense would have 10 new cool things and 10 riffs that to me were new. I mean, maybe maybe they were knocked off from, you know, a TV show or a movie or a, or a Shakespeare play or something that I wasn't familiar with. But when it shifted from explosive new things every issue to oh well here's a very well done competent professional 
comics, that's when my interest started, Wayne. Yeah, well, the magic is less at that point. And, of course, you know, there is that cliche that's cliche, because it's true that, you know, the golden age of anything is 12, you know. You just Alex and I were talking about that earlier. Yeah, outgrowing it, yeah. Did you go from high school straight to college? I went from high school. I, I went to Bronx Science, and then I went... I eventually I ended up in SUNY Binghamton, where they had a very unique film program. You know, it had a lot of things in common with comics and Marvel comics, but it was a film program run by avant-garde film artists, people who most people haven't heard of, the most famous. He didn't teach there, but the kind of filmmaking done by a guy named Stan Brackage. Sure, you know, of course. I went to a USC grad school and taught film at Duke for 15 years. Oh, okay. So Ken so, Jacobs is one of my teachers, if you know Ken's work. Yeah, of course. Larry Gottheim was another teacher, Dan Barnett, Saul Levine. So these were these were people in the brackage. You know, I mean, obviously, we're all unique and different and had their own visions, but it was non-narrative film, which was kind of the very opposite in the sense of a Marvel comic, because Marvel comic is... You know, among the things that Marvel does well is it tells a traditionally structured narrative story. But of course, I was the narrative guy in this non-narrative program, so mm-hmm. I didn't take any abuse for it. people respected it, and you know. But so that was so I had this kind of fine art school education in this esoteric area of film. And, and, so, were you uh, doing production, or was it more critical studies? I was doing more production, you know, which, which again was that sort of avant-garde ideal, you know. If you if you remember a book, this will really date me and whoever knows what I'm talking about. It's a book by a guy named Lenny Lipton, who was also the co-writer of Puff the Magic Dragon, the song. But Lenny Lipton wrote a book called Independent Filmmaking, and the introduction is by by Stan Brackage, and there's a photo in it of Brackage with a bolex slung over his shoulder as if he was a gunfighter in a 50s western you know so that sort of you know lone bold genius with a camera was was you know was sort of the vision you know that sort of replaced jack kirby in my <laughs> in my imagination uh, so, so that was my education and and actually we so when did you finish the film program i finished boy you want to know my age i finished in 76 I sort of had a toehold in that world. I had a, a shared show at a place called the Collective for Living Cinema, which was in Tribeca, where I showed my senior thesis film. And, and I and I did some PA work on uh, movies in New York. You know, I wasn't, I didn't want to go to graduate school, at least not yet. I didn't, I really didn't want to move to Hollywood, especially given sort of my anti-Hollywood aesthetic education. So I came, you know, this is where being from New York sort of comes in handy or determines your fate or something because right. like a lot of kids after college, well, I'm going home to live with my mom. You know, my mm-hmm. father had passed away when I was in high school, but my mom happened to live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So it was like, okay, well, here I am in the media capital of the world. You know, I have a really cool fine arts education, but, you know, it's one not going to make me rich tomorrow, what am I right. going to do? It didn't feel oh, practical at the time, yeah. It didn't feel practical. It felt like something that I would do for love, you know, and maybe apply for a grant or something. 
But I mean, even look, even the most well known. I mean, the, the fact is, Stan Brakhage, even being you know, say the most well known avant garde filmmaker, still had to have a day job teaching, and spent a lot of his time barnstorming different colleges and museums. I think largely because he had a lot of children that he had to support. Right, exactly. So we benefited because we got to see Stan Brackett and all these other filmmakers in person, but I think given their druthers, that was probably not their ideal way how to spend their time. So I'm back in New York. What am I going to do? Well, it might be fun to work at at Marvel Comics. Well, let's go back, and I'm going to hand you over to Alex in a second. Let's go back. You're already a comics professional to some degree at this point, right? Because you've worked... In '74, so, so, so basically, so. Atlas, no, no, no. I think I think you jumped. Now, yeah, I, uh, no, I had no, read no. that you had worked at Atlas Seaboard. Is that is that correct? This is totally incorrect. This is this is this is the ah. of, this is the bane of my existence. This is my first boss was Larry Lieber. Larry Lieber hired me, but he was back at Marvel. Hmm. In the Brit- he was work- was he working at the British exactly. Department at that point? Yes. Yes, Larry had been the editor at Atlas Seaboard during that company's brief existence. He, and Larry was my first boss. So somewhere, I think it was Jerry Bales who somehow inferred from that that I had worked for Larry at Atlas Seaboard. The problem is that's now in Jerry's who's who and it's therefore in Wikipedia. But Jerry has died, and his wife, I don't think, has any interest in updating and correcting his it. Webs is in correcting it. So yes, it makes me seem older than I am, which I don't like, and it's not true. I mean, I so I came I came to back to New York in '76. I worked a bunch of odd jobs in the in the local movie industry, mm-hmm. and then I I knew somebody who knew somebody who got me in on an informational tour to Marvel, where I thought it might be fun to work and and then I had an interview with Larry who would come back from Seaboard so I started there in 77 okay so that was totally after Atlas for sure then yeah yeah, yeah. Atlas ended in 75 right. and Larry yeah. running the British Department right so that's well um, that's great news for us we've, we've now served a purpose because yeah, anybody listening to this is going to know that's not right because I saw that you had worked with Lieber on the British comics, and that I and I wondered if he got you the job because of your past Atlas. Now it all makes sense. What, what happened was I went up to Marvel. Like I said, I had a distant connection that got me up there for an informational tour. While I was there, I ran into a guy I went to high school with who was working there, and he helped me, like a year later, get the entry-level job as Larry's assistant in the British department. So that was... <laughs> That was my beginning as a comics professional. Was that a natural place to go, the British department? Because, again, we've talked to, I think it was Tom Orzachowski and some others, where it seems like that's where they they head off there first. Was that a normal first step? Yeah, I think there were a few years because there was a lot of new material in the sense that there were new covers and new splash pages because we split the stories up into chapters, so there were new splash pages, new covers, and there was a lot of kind of, for artists, there was touch-up work and adding zipatone, so you could kind of learn the ropes. There was a little new material. Captain Britain was being put out. Oh, that Black yeah. Knight series and, yeah. and Hulk was great. Those are fun series. Right. That was actually done in England. That Hulk series was done... A lot of stuff happened in the British Department in a short period of time. So basically, I came in there in 77, Larry was the editor, I was the assistant editor slash production manager, hmm. and then we had a small bullpen that consisted of 
Well, Irving Watanabe, who was a letterer, sat in there and did his work and did a lot of work for us. Duffy Voland. There were people who were oh, yeah. who either used the room as freelancers, they used it to work in. Howard Bender, who was an artist, his name you may know, sure. was, a, was a staff production artist working in the British department. A guy named David Cohen, who at the time was Saul Brodsky's son-in-law. Uh, yeah, when I, yeah, yeah. When I, when I went out to Hollywood to become a musician. So a lot of different people kind of came to the British department. So if you were like a new artist looking to kind of get some practical experience, then yeah, come do this splash page, this recap splash page. Yeah, so a, lo- a lot of people went to the British department. When I was, you know, I think Tony Isabella was the editor, Scott Edelman, and then it was sort of a kind of a, a natural funnel into the mainstream editorial the, department, which if you know your history, stuff, yeah. if you know your history in the in the mid late seventies, the editorial department was was in constant flux. And so what happened was a guy named Des Skin, who had been the at that point, I think he was the British publisher of Mad, and I guess he'd probably done a bunch of other stuff too. He approached Marvel about. My impression is, I wasn't in those meetings, of course, but somehow making the British product more authentic, you know, which made sense. Like, instead of the British comics being put out by a bunch of guys in the Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens, maybe they should be put out by actual English people, you know? So, Des convinced Marvel to move the operation to England, and at that point, Larry was doing penciling and also the writing on the Hulk newspaper strip. Right. So he segued into that, and I became kind of an all-round assistant. They kind of invented uh, this general assistant job for me. So I was, I was the liaison with England. I was helping them get the reprint material so they could do the books, and I was also the assistant editor on Star Wars because England was using the Star Wars material at twice the rate that the U.S. was. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I became Archie Goodwin's assistant on Star Wars, and I worked, that was kind of, so I worked with Carmine Infantino on a lot of new covers. And yeah, yeah, late spaces. 70s, yes. Right, for the, for the Star Wars, which was, you know, I think he was among the first of my childhood idols that I got to work with. And well, that's pretty cool. And I learned how weird it was. I mean, I worked with guys who I knew, but I couldn't say that they were, you know, they were kind of legendary in my mind as names, but... To me, Carmine was always a star, you know, from the Flash yeah, and, sure. and, and Adam Strange and Batman. Carmine was very good at hitting deadlines. He was the professional. But there's that weird moment when, you, when you're on the phone and you're talking. It's like, hello, childhood idol. I can't believe I'm speaking to you. <laughs> it was my dream my entire life that one day I might actually get to know you and work with you. Now, where are the friggin' pages? Ah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, because he kind of, uh, he had to kind of answer to you in some way. Yeah, well, yeah, it, that, that's a totally surreal moment. You go, oh, well, this is definitely, you know, um, we're not in Kansas anymore. You know, I'm definitely. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. How, was, uh, how was Larry Lieber as a boss? Oh, Larry was great. Actually, Larry uh, is somebody I'm still very friendly with uh, currently. You know, I see him. Yeah. Every few weeks, so we have lunch, you know, Larry, you know, I'd say, I'd say the, I guess everybody has a unique series of people who mentor them and train them, but I may be one of the few people who was kind of, who learned a lot of what I know about comics from Larry, Louise Simonson, and Jim Shooter, you know, right? and then I learned a lot from a lot of other people. Those were the three 
who either by default or by choice said, I'm going to teach you how to do comics. Larry was terrific. Larry, his brother is who he is. So there's always yeah. sort of that in the background. But Larry on his own is incredibly smart and creative and talented. You know, I mean, yeah, uh, versatile. He can write and draw. Yeah. It's pretty good. I worked with Louise Simonson, you know, formerly Louise Jones. What happened was I worked in the British department. Then the British department went to there England, and I, was, and I had this combination, you know, utility player. If you remember, I ran a line of like half a dozen reprint books. So I yeah, I, for, I, I've got questions about those for sure. Uh, yeah, right. So I worked, I was a shared assistant between Saul Brodsky and Jim Shooter, which was interesting because, let's just say they weren't best friends, you know. So oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, that was sort of interesting to be in the middle of and then about a year later she was Louise Jones then came over from Warren and I was assigned as her assistant and luckily we got along very well so she took over I mean this is an incredible workload the X-Men titles the Conan titles the Star Wars titles we were doing like 12 books a month Micronauts Star Trek uh, Battlestar Galactica uh, yeah a lot and thing uh, you know oh and of course the Dazzler you know so yes Let's not get too far ahead, because I got, I got questions about those for sure. Now, was Jim Shooter's style of communication versus Saul Brodsky, did you, uh, that's interesting that you mentioned that. What was like a disagreement between them and difference in style between those two guys? Because Jim Shooter wrote Saul Brodsky's obituary like when he died, so that's interesting. Well, Jim was the editor-in-chief, so I guess they were different, they were different personalities and they were different phases in their careers, you know? Okay. I mean, I mean, even though I'm older now than Saul was then, Saul had nothing to prove. He had a nice job that he was good at. People liked him, and I think he was just sort of, I think he would have been content to just sort of play out however many years he was going to work till he retired. And he had gone out on his own with Skywald, you know, right. as, I, as I see the history now. So I guess he came back. He had a, you know, a, an executive position and with numerous responsibilities, but it seemed very much like it was a job to him which was fine you know i mean that uh, and he was a very nice guy people liked him and i think shooter was a young ambitious guy who sort of had a different vision for marvel and comics and what life was about and so it was just kind of a clash of two people at two different periods in their life. Then, of course, Saul got suddenly ill and died. I'm probably oversimplifying it, but when Saul was in the army, his platoon had been one of those groups of soldiers they put in the desert and said, we're going to set off this nuclear device here. You'll be fine. You just stand here. We're going to go into this bunker. You guys stand out here and, and you'll be fine. <laughs> and, and then I think he, he and I think a number of other people he served with you know, all had this kind of cancer that very quickly came on and very quickly spread. Because he was, so I think he was 64, if even that old when he died. And and, yeah. and I think it came on very quickly. So that, I think everybody was sort of shocked. And, and, and oh, that, okay. That was, again, I have no scientific... Right, but that makes this, sense. This I mean... This was sort of the scuttlebutt of, of, of how and why Saul suddenly got so ill and passed away. So I think he and Jim were just at, they had different worldviews and different things they wanted out of life. And so that just ended up, again, I never saw them have an argument, but my understanding was that they were... Not on the same page. Yeah, exactly. Now, was Stan around at all? I know he wasn't running things, per se, but was he in the offices? Did you Stan see him? Stan was in the office a couple of days a week. 
I don't have, you know, and it's funny, especially because I wrote this, you know, I'm writing this biography of him. I've been racking my brain for what's my first memory of meeting Stan, and I can't remember it. He was just there. He was certainly there enough when I started out that no cover, if he was in the office, no cover left the office without him seeing it and approving, you know, it before it went to the printers. Mm-hmm. So I know that certainly there were times, say if Larry was out sick or on vacation, where I'd have to go to Stan and get the British Department covers approved by him, but I can't, it's killing me, but I can't remember, you know, I should probably just make up something so I have a story to tell, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But yeah, he was definitely a presence, he was there, you know, there would be like large, you know, editorial or company-wide meetings where he would say a few words. And I think he was hands-on with the various editors-in-chief. So I think he was traveling a great deal to the West Coast, and then by 1980, he moved completely out there. Yeah, because he went to Hollywood, so, yeah. All right, so you were moved over from the British stuff to editing the American reprints, The Amazing Adventures, which was the X-Men, Tales to Astonish. It's a simultaneous, but go on. Okay, Tales to Astonish, Submariner, Marvel Super Action, Avengers, and the Silver Surfer fantasy masterpieces. But not Marvel Tales. Was that under a different fiefdom, or why, why was that not one of them? My understanding of the whole reason for me getting those books, or those books existing at all, was that Marvel had promised its advertisers that they would be in a certain number of, you know, X million comics every month. And I think in order to fulfill that commitment, they had to rush these reprint titles out. Oh, uh, that's fascinating. I'd never heard that before. So I guess whoever had Marvel Tales, and also I think maybe Marvel's Greatest Comics also. Right. I think that, you know, the idea was not, oh, this one person just supervised this reprint. The idea was, we need this reprint. Danny has a light workload. You know, ergo, Danny is now editing these. And then, I guess the shooter, I said, can I put my name in as reprint editor? And he said, fine. So that's, that's how that ended up happening. Nice. And, and, you know, and then the thing that I had to do with most of those was delete you know, a certain amount of material because I think these were 20 or 22 page stories. We had to fit into 17 page oh, okay. formats or 18 page formats. Oh, so some panels are missing actually. Oh yeah, yeah. If you go through, I mean, that's, I think, I think for purists, those, you know, they don't like those for that reason. Was that hard for you to take a issue of Lee Bushima's Silver Surfer and say, I'm going to lose this page and this page? You know, I think in that case, it was sort of the opposite in that we split them into maybe split them into two. I think those worked okay. Somehow I don't remember. I remember being more an issue with the Avengers and with the Submariner. You know, here's the thing. I was not from fandom. I was a fan and a passionate lover of comics as a kid, but I didn't fetishize in that way. I do now, but when I was like, you know, in my early 20s coming into the business, I even did. Here's something I did that will really uh, bring down the wrath of your of your listeners on me. <laughs> in one of the Busema reprints, it might have been the Surfer, but I think it was an Avengers reprint. There was some scene where there were a couple of small-time hoodlums robbing a truck or something, and I had the production department white out, you know, they were, you know, whatever they called each other, I had them white out their names and put in the names of two of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at that point, it was like... You're an editor, why not? 
I'm the editor, and who's and who, who's going to care? You know, I mean, I couldn't imagine that anybody would notice or care. How funny! You know, now of course I go, oh my God, how would how could someone, you know, you know, now I'd be horrified if if somebody accused me of doing that. But then it was like, well, this will be cute. I'll put my. <laughs> it is cute, I'll actually. <laughs> Now, would you would you be the one that would decide that it needed a new cover or cover changes, but especially getting, like, say, Gil Kane to do a cover instead rather than use the original, or where did that come from? I'd say most of the time, I guess since I answered to Shooter on those, mm-hmm. well, I remember we split up the X-Men stories. So yeah. then I would try to get somebody, you know, say John Byrne did one or two covers. Carmine did some splash pages. Not because his work looked anything like, like Kirby and Ryman from 1963, but because Carmine had a contract that guaranteed him an X amount of work and to help him make the contract. We, you know, a lot of stuff was done just because somebody needed work or was contractually obligated to get, you know, there's a lot of creative decisions, especially back then, that had more to do with fulfilling contracts and commitments. So, yeah, so the X-Men stuff, I remember we definitely split that up into two parts because those stories were so long. And then we had, oh, and then we could put like the origin, the X-Men origin five pages from the 60s in the back. So that would be, I guess, me, and I guess it would have to be approved by Jim, who I was answering to at the time as far as getting the covers. I think we put out that Fantasy Masterpieces as a full-size comic, so there was we didn't ever have to cut the surfer. We left out the Tales of the Watcher stories that had been in the back of the originals. That's right. I think that's I think yeah. that's exactly right. So I think at least in the case of the ones I did, it was only the Amazing Adventures. Was that the X Men reprint that we got? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then, and again, if we split a story in two, same thing. We get a new splash page done. Was Marvel Super Special the Xanadu one your first <laughs> assignment where you were editing all new material? And yes, I'm bringing that up. Wow, that's a good question. All new. Well, I mean, I I edited the articles. Louise edited. What a saga that Xanadu was. Because <laughs> that was, you got a lot of Xanadu stories. I guess that was probably among the first things, because I was in charge of all the articles in that. And, you know, I made as many beginner mistakes as anybody else makes as a beginner in terms of the articles. But I think they ultimately were approved by the Xanadu people. Well, you really have studied my career. This is frightening. Um, yes. Yeah, that's what we do. That's that's how we function. I know. So are you going to ask me questions about, like, my ex-girlfriends and (laughs) (laughs) ex-girlfriends? No, Um, I I do that for my day job as a divorce lawyer, so I I don't bring those up. You know, my favorite Xanadu story, I mean, you know, the movie, it was not one of the great movies ever made, you know, but... (laughs) But when you're working on a project, you have to convince yourself that it is. You know, yeah, you got to get into it. You become emotionally invested in it. So I remember, you know, we'd done the comic, which was Louise literally finished editing the comic and like left the next day to get married to Walt and leave on their honeymoon. I mean, that oh, was, cool. And we had a hundred people helping finish it, and then we tried some new. The idea was we were going to do it as a pencils-only job. And they'd reproduce from the pencils, but the problem was the technology didn't really exist to do that yet. But I remember, so Joel Silver, this is before he was Joel Silver. This is just Joel Silver, the producer of Xanadu. And he, we'd finished the comic, I think, and gone to press. I don't think it would come out yet, but he came in and he took everybody who'd worked on it to this private screening room in Midtown, a couple of blocks from Marvel's offices. 
And so, you know, know, we're all pumped because, again, we all, oh, boy, we bet it'll be great. It's got uh, Gene Kelly and Olivia Newton-John. It's got all this great music. And the music actually was good. If you ever listen to the soundtrack, it's not a bad soundtrack. So we're all pumped, and then the movie plays. And and really, you know, I mean, the closest, you know, metaphor I can bring to you is the audience – and the producers watching Springtime for Hitler on opening night, you know, they could have substituted our faces just looking at the screen and going, oh, my and God. And you're coming from a Stan Brackett background. This is hilarious. <laughs> well, actually, uh, <laughs> the lights went up and we all said something polite to Joel Silver and got the hell out of there as fast as we could. You know, when you say from a Stan Brackett's background, my friend David Kasakov, who was uh, active in fandom, and actually was one of the writers of that famous article about uh, Master Race that he wrote with John Benson and uh, oh, Art sure. Eagleman. So David, I went to college with David, and he studied the same program. I helped him get hired working in production in the British Department for about a year when I was in the British Department. David ran into Ken Jacobs in, uh, I think, in Soho at a magazine store, and he, and he showed Ken the Xanadu magazine, and Ken said, jokingly, he said, uh, if I could, I'd go back and lower his grades. <laughs> mm, that's funny. <laughs> that's great. I believe it was a joke because I've, I've been in touch with Ken since then. He, had, he hasn't mentioned Xanadu. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you're there during those early years at, at Marvel, did you make any major friendship? Did you become friends with Archie Goodwin or with any of these people? Wow. Mark Grunwald. Was Mark Grunwald a friend of yours? I have to say, you guys are good interviewers because I've never been asked questions like this. I had close friends from, like, uh, you know, so-called real life, people I'd gone to, you know, high school and summer camp with. Work friends are difficult. And although, obviously, there are people at Marvel who've met and even gotten married, I had a lot of friends of various levels over the years, a lot of whom I've actually reconnected with on social media I'd say at different times, people I was close with would include Bob Budiansky, Eileen mm. Martanoff, Scott Edelman, Howard Mackey, Nell Yumta. But I mean, there's all sorts of different, mm-hmm. Grunewald certainly. The reason that you're getting such a uh, tongue-tied answer from me is really goes to the topic question of... Yeah, you don't want to insult anybody either. No, it's not even that. I mean, people I, you know, I don't want to talk about it. I'm just not mentioning that. But it's the idea that you work at a place like Marvel Comics and it's your first job that ends up lasting close to 20 years. You're growing up in public. So it's this really weird fishbowl thing where you have this combination of these public and private persona. Yes. You know, so there's a couple of people, you know, I, I'd say right now the closest friends I have from my years in comics, you know, Tom DeFalco, J.M. DeMattis, Eric Fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure I'm leaving out some people who will be offended. Them. You know, but it's a tricky thing, you know, especially if you're somebody's editor or they're your editor or they can determine whether you get work or get promoted or... So, boy, oh, boy, I mean, human relationships are complicated enough, but when you add in this factor of also being involved with people's careers and incomes and egos and creative talents and self-image. Sorry, I know you were expecting me to say, like, blah, 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 was a great guy, and I hung up, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, (laughs) you know, so there was, you know, you know, there were groups of guys I went to lunch with. There were some people that I hung out with. But I, I would say 
maybe because I am a native New Yorker and because although there were a lot of native New Yorkers in the business, in my generation, there were, there were a lot of people from out of, you know, who were not out of town. So I think for those people, comics, for better or worse, became their social life as well as their professional life. Uh. And I was always a little wary about that. I just felt like I was a little cautious about becoming too friendly with people at work. And I had a group of friends, you know, from outside of it, from my other lives. So there's a lot of people I liked, a lot of people I hung out with, a lot of people I went to movies and lunches with. I was kind of careful about making my social life and my work life entirely intermeshed. <laughs> right. You didn't want it incestuous. Yeah, well, comics is incestuous enough, you know. I mean, right. one morning you're somebody's editor and the next and that same afternoon they're your editor, you know, and Right. Like a religious compound in a way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I guess there's a reason that phrases like true believers came to, came to <laughs> the problem, you know? That's true. That's all ties together. That's interesting. So you started editing new books, I mean, like not just like a special, but around the time of Man-Thing's uh, relaunch, you were doing right. that when Chris Claremont was writing it? Well, what happened was I became Louise's assistant. You know, I guess she was the editor maybe of record, but it was part Marvel, you know, especially under Shooter, you know, but in general had a farm system almost, you know, that was the best uh, metaphor, and I think we called it that. So if, if you were someone's assistant then they would delegate a couple of titles to you to edit. Ones either that were considered marginal, so if you screwed them up, who cared, or, you know, and or that had a strong creative team that kind of were on a pretty set course. So again, there was a limit to how much you could mess it up. I think under Louise's supervision, I edited Man-Thing and I think King Conan and Kazar eventually. And that was with Bruce Jones writing it, right? That was with Bruce Jones writing it, yeah. Again, coming from Shooter, who had a lot of good ideas, you know, the idea was we are, we have figured out the best way to do 22-page superhero comics, at least in 1980-whatever, you know. This is what we consider the state of the art, and so now let's codify it and teach people how to do it. And so they did that. So I started with with those comics and... I was also writing The Dazzler at the, at the same time. And I was editing right. The Dazzler. I was editing The Dazzler, and then I had... It was a big editorial crisis. Tom was unhappy with the editorial decision that I made. This is, of course, the irony of life again, but of comedy, yeah. too. Is that... You know, I mentioned to you that two people I consider some of my closest friends are DeFalco and DeMattis. They're guys who have every right not to talk to me, because I really butchered some of their stories as an editor. I see. There's more, there's more uh, con- conflict there. But they're actual grown-ups who, like, were able to separate, you know. And, of course, I think I got better, you know, as an editor. But you were, so, co- now, you were listed in the credits as co-writing Dazzler as of issue six and then went on to, to write it. Was, yeah. was it with, actual with co-writing or did you take it over? There's a reason Tom is considered a top professional. It's because he's a top professional. So Tom had outlined, you know, like three or four issues in advance. So... I mean, his outlines really, uh, for many artists, would have been enough to do a plot, but I took those outlines, and then with Shooter, who took over as, as editor, expanded them into more detailed plots, which Frank Springer then, then penciled. So the credits are correct. I think there's something like story. So Tom had come up with the basic story, but I fleshed it out into more detail and wrote the dialogue. Yeah, and the dialogue what was- part. 
What was uh, Frank Springer like to work with? Swell. Okay. <laughs> well, did you he, had a, he had a lot of experience by that point. Yeah, Frank, whatever. Did you think he was a good match on the book? Were you happy that he was the artist? I didn't have any, yeah, whatever. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I got, I just assumed not talk about that. You know, Frank. All right. Was, so you did, was, you did Frank about. professionally did his job, you know. You yeah, did about right. 20 issues of that. Right. right. And then you left and immediately they bring in Bill Sikivich to, to do covers, and they're like some of my favorite covers of that, that time. Did you ever feel like, gee, why didn't I get those? Actually, Bill had done a lot of covers while I was writing it. He, didn't he did do a few, yeah. He did a whole bunch, yeah. You know, Jim uh, Shooter became obsessed with Dazzler for whatever reason I'll never understand. Okay, so I was wondering that. So you're not sure what that reason is? You know, in retrospect... I think he probably wanted to prove that he was skilled enough as an editor and writer to take even, you know, an idea like Dazzler that a lot of people made fun of and make it succeed, you know. And right, make, and maybe make a make movie. It, make, make it credible as a mainstream Marvel comic. You know, I think it could have succeeded, but I think the emphasis on the cheesecake aspect of the comics and of the character mm -hmm. undermined that intention. You know, I wrote it and I approached it as if it was Iron Man or as if it was Thor, you know, right. as, as a serious Marvel comic. But it is sometimes hard when you have a character whose breasts are twice as big as her head to to sort of see, you know, and wearing a, a, a glowing disco costume to necessarily be taken as seriously as she might be. I, I think the Dazzler Galactus trilogy was actually very good. You know? Yeah, I like this. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, th I think we did surprise people with a number of those comics and really did pull off that impossible task of doing, you know, serious 80s-style superhero comics with right. you know, the Dazzler, who, even with though the she 70s never show person. Even though she never officially had the disco in front of her name, you know, everybody knew she was the Disco Dazzler. Disco Dazzler, yeah. Besides Dazzler, you did some what-ifs, beginning with Dazzler becoming the Herald of Galactus. Were those right. fun books to do? Love doing what-if, you know. What if, you know, I guess, even though I wasn't the uh, star Talmudic scholar in my yeshiva, I think there's something about sort of that kind of history and detail parsing that you you know you go back into a story and you try to find the moment where oh if this had happened differently you'd have a whole different set of reality and then later on in the 90s I did a lot of what is for Craig Anderson those were immense fun you know again because as long as you as you could justify what you were doing is kind of being true to the personalities of the various characters you could do a lot of stuff and and just play with the characters in the ways that you really couldn't in the more mainstream the shared universe mm -hmm. right I have two more questions and then I'm gonna give you over to Alex for uh, spider-man my first question is the graphic novel X-Men that God loves man kills were you the chief editor or assistant editor what was your role I, I, in that? I, I was the assistant that was all Louise and Chris and the Brent I mean I you know, I might have put the numbers on top of the pages. I can't say, you know, mm. a whole lot for you. <laughs> what was your reaction to that? That always seemed like like such a, a major book to come out in terms of those early days of uh, uh, playing with the graphic form that way. Yeah, it was really impressive. I mean, I knew Brent's work from Kazar, and, of course, Chris was Chris. 
I don't know if I have anything profound said about that. You know, it was, you know, it was this interesting period where the term graphic novel was becoming popular through yeah. Will Eisner and and through Art Spiegelman, you know, and Mouse, and so you had this thing called the graphic novel, and then Marvel, and you know, in, in a way that you can't blame them, you know, sort of tried to co-opt that label of graphic novel and. Really, I mean, most of what we did was just like really long superhero comics, but some of them were quite good and had really talented people at the top of their game. And I think that's what God Loves Man Kill. I mean, it's a great title, God Loves Man Kill. Yeah, it's a great, yeah. it's a great book. You know, that's up there with some of the great film noir titles of Hollywood history. You know, um, so, it could be, it easily could be one of those. It, yeah, it, it is. Yeah, it's yeah, a great yeah, title. Yeah. So as I said, I I was literally the assistant on that. I didn't have a whole lot to do with it. And then you were doing writing work on the official handbook along with Grunewald and uh, Peter Sanderson and a few others. Out of all of them, who was the guy that knew everything already in terms of the uh, the history? Was it Sanderson? Grunewald? Uh, both of them. You know, there was a reason they did that book. I mean, and again, I, I wrote maybe half a dozen entries, if that many, for the book. I was I was very much involved with the Marvel saga. Right. Right. I, I love that story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That was the handbook. There were characters that I was either writing or editing or just had an interest in. You know, I named Kazar's parents after my own parents. You know, because nobody had ever given them names. So that's, ah, that's awesome. Uh, I like how you're putting your friends and families in these. In these. Uh... <laughs> that's great information. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, you do stuff like that, and it didn't contradict anything. Just nobody had ever given. You know, that was not as egregious as my horrible sin of putting my friends' names in the Avengers uh, reprint. Uh, as far as replacing, yeah. But it's fun. You know, I remember there was one night, a bunch of us were out having dinner, and we were kind of riffing on various handbook, you know, how different characters in history and fiction would be described in the Marvel Universe handbook. And I remember I got a big laugh when I said something like, Jesus could bench press, you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> ten tons, ten tons. I would estimate. Well, you yeah, know, who is stronger? <laughs> you know, yeah, he had the ability to, you know, transmute. Water. Oh, wa uh, water to wine. So you're like, like molecule man, basically. Right. It, it, pretty much. You know, yeah. Which is actually, I think, how uh, how Shooter played him later on in the Secret Wars. You know. Yeah. So, that's um, funny. That's a funny comparison. I never thought of equating them. And then after this is done, Spider-Man takes over your life. To yeah. some degree. And I'm going to uh, hand you off to Alex okay. primarily for this part. So, this is fantastic. Thank you, Danny, for speaking with us. We're going to continue this in the next episode here at the Comic Book Historian Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Stay tuned. <laughs>